We're going to use John 3.16, as I told you, all the way through this little series. And I don't know, I imagine maybe this first, second week in March we'll, we'll be done with this course. We won't be able to have it the first full week of March, but uh, we shouldn't, shouldn't carry this on too, too much longer, although we could do it for a long, long span of time, dig as deep as we want. So quote with me, if you will, John 3.16, and pray that I don't get it wrong. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now I want to do a quick review to bring us up to speed to where we are and then we'll move on. I told you a couple of weeks ago that our salvation is in three tenths according to the word of God, meaning that it's past, it is present, and it is future. I have been saved, I am being saved, I shall be saved. There was initial work of salvation that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost did on all of us when he brought us to Christ and did a new birth within us, which imparted to us the divine nature of God, which, uh, which took us out of the kingdom of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of light. That's called, that's called salvation. And after that, there's a continuation. We call it sanctification. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does in us, with us working with Him to uh, move farther away from the world and closer to Christ. And then the final stage of this, or the final work of this, which is yet future, is our glorification, when we'll be changed into His likeness. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three had part in this. Now, the last couple of weeks that I've dealt with the work, of the, the work of, the, of the Son in this, I told you I wasn't going to deal with what the Father did, but I just want to make mention every time we quote John 3, 16, we know a part of what God does. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, the Bible would teach us that in the beginning wrought the plan. We continue to read and see, and Jesus bought the plan, and we continue to read and see from the book of Acts on that the Holy Spirit wrought the plan. So there's so many ways we can say the things that we, we, we say. There's an initial work, there's a continual work, and there's a final work, and I'm, I'm glad. So last week we we, we look to see how that Christ, uh, not only in his death saved us, but in his life he assures that we're saved. And please don't forget, one of the first studies that we did is out of the book of Romans, chapter, chapter what is it, chapter 5, where he talks about, you know, he died to save us and yet he lives to keep us saved. Last week we finished up with the book of Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 7 and 25, where it says we have a high priest, you know, which is continually making intercession for us. So tonight, so tonight, if you want to turn over to chapter 16 of the gospel according to John, we'll see the work of the Holy Spirit um, in, in relationship to, to our salvation, from the new birth work on right to, to the completion. Now, I'm going to spend more time on a couple of these points. I've got, I don't know, four, five, six, or seven, and not going to look at all of them, only to mention them 
and pass through. But I want us to kind of focus on two or three out of these, spend more time uh, on those than, than we do on the others. But before, I told you all to turn over, what, you, you all stay in chapter 16 if you're already there. I'm going to read a couple of verses on down, or on above, above verse 16 here in John chapter 3. Now, the beginning of this chapter, if you remember, it is a record of the conversation that Jesus had with the premier teacher of Jerusalem of that day by the name of Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, he was rich, he was educated, he was courtly, he was known throughout, throughout that nation, throughout the city of Jerusalem. And if you remember, he came to Jesus by night and began to talk to him. And he testified and said, look, we know that thou you know, come from God, for no man doeth the miracles that you do except God be with you. And Jesus interrupts and seemingly, to me, says one of the strangest things that uh, ever could be because it had nothing seemingly to do with what Nicodemus had already said, but Jesus knew what he was going to say, and more than that, what he needed in his heart. So Jesus went right to the heart of the matter. In verse 3, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye be born again or from above, ye cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asked an obvious question, but notice how he asked it. Jesus was talking to him on a spiritual level. Nicodemus was on a very physical level. Well, I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. I understand that, but Jesus was trying to bring him up. He goes on to say, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time in his mother's womb and be born? And listen to what Jesus said, verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to spend much time on that. There's a lot of difference of opinion about what the water, it's obvious of what the Spirit is, but you'd be surprised what theologians can confuse them and others with or what people are just confused because they don't know how to read and study and rightly divide the Word of God. The Spirit is the Spirit. Everybody heard me say that, say amen. There's only one spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about, he's talking about part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the word or the water there is a picture of the word of God. How many of y'all got saved that are here tonight without hearing the word of God? Anybody got saved before you heard somebody preach? It won't happen. It will not happen. I could take you to, he, to uh, Romans 10, to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, and show you the process that God Almighty has laid out how to bring men and women to Christ. And it always involves the Word of God. Three times God performed miracles of reviving people or resurrections in the New Testament. A young girl, uh, uh, a, widow's, a widow's son and a man by the name of Lazarus that he loved. Can anybody tell me how Jesus performed these three different miracles all in the same way? What was his method? Anybody? He spoke the word to them. Are y'all with me? He spoke his word. He said unto the maid, rise. You know, he laid his hand on, on, on the briar, and, and he spoke to, you know, the widow 
of Nain's son. And, and Lazarus, he said, come forth. Man, that's just so beautiful. When he healed blind men, he did it differently, all of them. So the Word of God is so important in this. This water, everybody listening, this water is not the natural birth, which is a water birth. Let's just stick with the Word of God. It's not baptism. Baptism had never been mentioned before in this passage of Scripture. It's just that simple. By the preaching of the Word of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, where Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 maybe, where he said it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. So here in John chapter 16, we, we find that the Holy Spirit has his hand in our conversion from the beginning. Listen to what he says in verses 16, 7 down to 11. Then I'll read rather quickly, but not too quickly. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or necessary that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if, but if or since I depart, I will send him unto you. When we're talking about the Comforter, who is that? Anybody? What's that a reference to? It's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verse 8, And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment to come. Let me just stop there instead of just for time's sake. Y'all can read those other couple of verses. He says he will reprove, or listen now, convict the world of sin. How many of you all can remember before you got saved getting under conviction? You know, that's one of the most precious times in our life. When, when I see somebody from the pulpit sitting in, in, the, in the seats in our sanctuary, anywhere else, and the Word of God begins to eat at them, and they begin to get uncomfortable and get under the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, I am impressed in this day and this hour. I'm afraid people simply don't let, and I, I don't understand this phenomenon, I'm amazed in this day when people don't let or allow the Holy Spirit, friend, to work on them and in them the way it seemed to used to be in my days when I was young. I, and, and it seems to, to be that way. Horse sitting, my spiritual mentor, told me though one day, he said, son, I'm going to tell you something. He said, you'll probably live to see the day when the Holy Spirit and the gospel will have little or any effect on people. And boy, he was right. That was prophetic, though he wasn't a prophet. That's, that's not what I am saying. Not only does the Holy Spirit convict us, but it convinces us. He convinces us of our need of Jesus. Let me ask y'all something. When anybody in there ever got saved and the Holy Spirit hadn't dealt with you? You remember him waking you up in the night with the fear of God on your heart and said, man, if you die today, you're going to hell. Anybody else have that problem? You go around that curve and the car's on the wrong side, you're going to die lost. Anybody else ever have that? You get under conviction, you couldn't eat. You got irritable. You know what I'm saying? Thank God for old-time conviction. Not only that, we spend a lot of time on that. But once he convicts us, he regenerates us. Let's go to the book of Titus, chapter, chapter, chapter 3. Book of Titus, right after the second 
book of Timothy, right before the book of Philemon or Philemon, wherever you come from is proper. So, the book of Titus, chapter 3, one of the three pastoral epistles that the apostle wrote. This one to Titus, first and second Timothy, obviously to Timothy. Now, one of the things that, that the new birth really is, is the birthing of Jesus in us or the placing of Jesus in us, just like the Holy Spirit did in the book of uh, Luke chapter 1, about verse 35, I believe it is, when, when the Holy Ghost overshadowed Mary and uh, uh, the Son of God attached himself to the womb of that virgin from Nazareth. Pretty amazing. That's what, the whole, that's what the new birth does. We get a new nature placed within us. We get Christ. You remember what Paul said in the book of Galatians 2.20? He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But the life I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've used the illustration of Steve Arnick and used myself now that Steve, but, but mine's kidney, Steve's the liver. Steve got a liver transplant. When we get saved, that's what we get. We get a liver transplant. The Son of God comes to live within us. Isn't that amazing? That just absolutely amazes me. Look at uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5. I'll pick it up in, in uh, let's pick it up in verse 3 just to get the flow of it. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish and disobedient, deceived and serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, what's the next word? But on the other hand, According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful. Does anybody know what the word regeneration means? Well, I'm glad you come so I could tell you. The Greek word, and I, I'm not good in English, and you all know that. The, the Greek word, though, that regeneration comes from and listen to it, you'll pick up part of it, no doubt, is palingenesia. Did you hear the last word? Genesia. What's that sound like? The book of? The book of beginnings, right? So it is a new beginning is what he is saying here. That's what the word means. Palingenesia. And how wonderful that, that is. We, we have something new that happens with us. It is the impartation, according to the book of Second Peter, first or second. Let me get it right so I can make sure there's a lot of people are listening to this. It's it's Second Peter chapter one, verse four, where we become partakers of the divine nature. And that's what Jesus was saying in John three, 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 five, you must be born again or from above. Isn't that amazing? Just wonderful. So, we have a new beginning in Christ Jesus. We're made new creatures in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If any man, meaning woman, boy, or girl, be in Christ, he is a new creature or creation. Behold, all things passed away. All things become 
new and what a joy, what a joy that is. Questions, comment on those? Let me give you one more and then we'll, we'll, we'll look at Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes. Turn with me really quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and we're going to look at verse 13 and see what, see what the Holy Spirit does in addition to these things of bringing us in, into the body of Christ or bringing us into this, this place of a new birth. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Anybody ever done a personal study on the work of the Holy Spirit to see how vast and how broad that it is, how he is involved in our life from the beginning all the way to the end? Listen to what he says. We'll, we'll read, verse, um, read verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one and many members, and all the members of that one body, being member are one body, so also is Christ. He's comparing the natural body to the spiritual body. For by one Spirit are we all baptized in one, into one body, whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, and have been made, all made to drink into, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, one Spirit. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, he baptizes us or brings us into and places us into our part of the body of Christ. That is amazing. Now, let me ask y'all a question as we turn to Acts chapter 2. Was the Holy Spirit anywhere in the Old Testament? It's not a trick question now. Anybody? He was. He was. Well, if he was present in the Old Testament, he was from the beginning, even from the creation. Uh, what's the difference in his work or how he manifests himself or what he did in the Old Testament, what he does in the New? Yeah, we ought to read the Old Testament to learn without a doubt. The big difference is he comes to permanently indwell us. That's one of the great things, one of the great features about the Holy Spirit. And see, when we get to this, we're going to spend some time, and we're going to find out just, just through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit what that means to us. We'll find out that he, is, he, he seals us, he is the earnest to us, and he is our witness and what all those things mean to us. God, if, everybody, if, if you believe God wants, to, wants, wants us to know that we're saved, say amen. Wouldn't it be awful to have something this good and not know it? Now, I've heard preachers, and I don't know exactly why they say what they've said, but I, I've heard them say, that you can be saved and not know it. I don't think something as big as God can get on the inside of you and you or I not know it. That's an impossibility. And when he comes in us, listen now, he puts his imprint on us. I, I mean to tell you, he, he, he does something to us to make sure that we know and others that see us that we're saved, that we belong to him, 
that we're his and he's ours. And not does he put something in us that, that enables others to know by the works we do, the life we live, and the change that's manifest in us. He gives us a witness internally to us. Now, you see, I used to, I used to rely so much on how I felt. Feelings are important. But here's a little ditty that I learned, and I've shared it time and again, and I'll share it again tonight. Be my feelings what they will. Jesus is my Savior still. Now, I don't run on emotion anymore. I used to, but I don't anymore. I've learned to run on the truths of this word. And whether I feel like it or not, every time, say, I turn, every time I turn to 1 John chapter 5, I don't know, it's maybe verse 11 or 12, I'm reminded that John says, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God who moved that holy man of God to write this for me that I have the witness in myself. And Paul even said in the book of Romans that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Isn't that wonderful? So... See, I, I mean, Lord, there's so many places I want to take you all right now with this. Acts chapter 2, I asked you to go there, I think. Did I or not? Okay. Listen to how the first couple of verses here is, is written. I may read down to, to verse 4, the beginning of verse 4. We'll see. And notice this has, as, as Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, introduces us to one of the greatest events that we have record of in the New Testament. And let me say, just by passing, the book of Acts is a book of history. In fact, it's the only book of history in the New Testament, unless you would include Revelation. But Revelation, um, though one day it will be historical, it's, it's Revelation, it's yet future. So it's the only book, listen to this. It's not a place to go in and to establish church doctrine. Never heard me say that, say amen. It contains doctrine. Without a doubt, it contains doctrine. But it is a transitional book. It, it, it is a historical book. It is not a book of doctrine. A book of doctrine, as far as establishing church doctrine, are found in the epistles that uh, we find from uh, the book of Romans on to the book of um, Second Peter or Jude. Jude. Forgot about Jude. So we got to understand some things about this. But listen to what he says. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. What's that, what's that phrase, fully come, say? What, what does this speak? What does that mean? When what? When not when it was coming, but when it was fulfilled. Now, see, here's where I don't know how far to go with you all. Turn back with me. Keep your finger there in Acts 2 if you choose. It'll it'd be easy to find. Go to the book of Leviticus chapter 23. We're, we're going to start on some of this tomorrow night, the Lord willing, here in our Wednesday night study as we, as we try to figure out a possible time when this uh, first war of Gog and Magog uh, will be fought. Chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus beginning at verse 15. Somebody came up a long time ago with this saying about New and Old Testament. 
They said the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And how true, they dovetail together. When I go to the Old Testament and read and then come to the New Testament and see it fulfilled or how it's brought out or how it reaches back somewhere to the Old Testament and they come together for clarification, it strengthens my faith. God designed it that way. Does anybody know what, uh, what, uh, what chapters in the Bible where you'd find it is referred to as the seedbed of the, of the Bible? Genesis chapters 1 through 11. You, you'll be referred back to there in your study, that book of beginnings, so many times it's amazing. Somebody came up with that way of making reference to it. Here really quickly, and pray that I'll do this quickly but clearly. Here in chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus, I think is one of the deepest chapters there is, if not the deepest chapter in the Word of God. You say, why? In this chapter, God gives us his calendar. In this chapter, God gives to the children of Israel, and there in other places, like the Day of Atonement is found back over in Leviticus chapter 16, as it's shown how that they are to, um, to uh, celebrate uh, the Day of Atonement, how it's supposed to be done according to God's will, so it will please God. But in this chapter, we have a compilation of all seven feasts that were actual, literal feasts to the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, that he delivered out of bondage under the blood, taking them to the promised land and actually bringing him, them to himself. These seven feasts were not only actual feasts that they participated in, in seven different times of the year, they're also prophetical. We know this because, for instance, the first feast that God instituted, does anybody remember the name of it? it? It took place when they came out of Egypt on that night and they offered a lamb. Does anybody remember the name of it? The Feast of the Passover. It was to happen somewhere in, in, in March or April, depending on the year. Their calendar made it fall in a different month each year, just about. And it pictured or typified Christ. As the Lamb of God, like Paul said, our sacrifice, our Passover, dying for us. There are seven of these feasts. You have the feast of, of, of Passover, then there's followed it by the feast of unleavened, unleavened bread, the feast of the first fruits. It's followed then by the feast of Pentecost. And in these feasts, God had prophecy about Israel and also the church, about Israel and the church and his son who would come to die for us and be raised for us and even of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Am I being clear in this? Is everybody following? I'm just trying to give a, a clear, brief overview. Here's the deal. These first four feasts have been fulfilled. There, there's never going to be another Pentecost. There's never going to be another Passover. There's never going to be another first fruit offering. The day that Christ got up out from among the dead, he's the first fruits of all, of all. It's a promise of more to come is what the first fruits is, is a picture of. And 
Here in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, or when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. Now, what's the piece of, what does the Feast of Pentecost picture to us? Anybody? Help us move along quick. It's a picture of the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. Let's read a couple real quick, and I'll, I'll move on. Well, we can stay here for, for a day or two. In verse 15 and following, listen to what he says. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, which is Sunday. What day of the week was the Sabbath? What day of the week is the Sabbath? Saturday. It's not a strict question. It's never changed. Sunday is Sunday. Saturday is Saturday. Saturday is the end of the week. Saturday had to do with the law. It was a day of rest. Sunday is a a day that marks a new beginning. It's the eighth day. It's the morrow or, or the day after the Sabbath. It's the day that Jesus came out from among the dead. And could you guess by me saying that, what day of the week was it when, when Pentecost uh, occurred and the Holy Spirit descended to dwell within the heart of men and women that are saved? What day of the week do you think it was? Sunday. Exactly right. So he says, um, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, meaning resurrection, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, 49 days. He said, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall be, shall ye number 50 days. 49 days, seven complete weeks plus one day. The word Pentecost means 50. And now watch this next phrase. And ye shall offer a new meat offering. Now the word meat there doesn't mean flesh, it means seed. Okay, it, 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 that's what it's talking about. It's talking about either the barley or the wheat or, or the, uh, you know, the, the bread, either barley bread or, or wheat bread that's been, been, been baking in an oven. But watch this. It said, you shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two-tenths deal. They shall be of flour, of fine flour, shall be bacon with leaven. What other, what other sacrifice do you all, anybody remember that God commanded them to offer, offer leaven with it? There may have been one more, I think, but, but uh, what's leaven? What's leaven a picture of or a type of? Always evil, always sin, always. Now look at this. There's not one loaf, but two loaves. What do you think those two loaves picture or refer to or are a type of? Who makes up the body of Christ, the church? What true groups of people? The Jew and the Gentile. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, giving none offense to the Jew nor the Gentile nor the church of God. The Jew and the Gentile are brought together in one body in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 says that the wall of partition was broken down between the Jew and the Gentile. And those two have been made one body in Christ Jesus. He even says there's no difference between the Jew or the Gentile. He goes on to say there is neither a Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male or female. Now, that doesn't mean when somebody is saved as a Jew, they have to forget all their Jewishness. That's not what he's saying. 
But when we're in Christ, we're one body. We're neither Jew nor Gentile. We're one in Him. Got that? Okay, now listen. Listen to how true the Word of God is. Listen to the wisdom of Almighty God. Everybody in here that's saved and you know that you're saved, perfectly say amen. Everybody in here that you know you're perfectly saved, uh, that think you're perfect now that you have been saved, say amen. See, y'all got it. So what that means, if you're not perfect, you must have sin in your life at times, right? Oh, you do, and so do I. This old nature that we are to reckon dead when the new nature, the divine nature is birthed in us. It won't die until we die, until the change is coming, until we become a new creature in Christ. On the other side, this old nature, the Adamic nature, that come from the fall of Adam, it will be with us until then. But what we're to do, we're to reckon or act as if it were dead. We're to give it no power, to give it no pleasure, to give it no leeway in our life. But we are to act as if it were dead. It's not, but that's the way. And I don't know about you all, but I fail in doing that sometimes. Don't you? Now look at the beauty of this. See, I said early in this study, if sin sends you to hell, how much sin do you have to sin before you go to hell? Somebody answer that question. Not if you're a believer. See, when I was growing up, when I was growing up in, 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 in my culture, in, in, in the place that, that I was taught how to live for Christ, the good godly people, they just didn't quite know how to rightly divide the Word of God. I was taught that after I saved, if I did one sin and died before I confessed it and asked God to repent, uh, you know, forgive me and to repent of it, guess what? I'd die and go to hell. That's what I lived with that. I mean, I, you, know what I, you know what I call it? I call it revolving door salvation. I'm in the kingdom, I'm out of the kingdom. I'm in the kingdom, I'm out of the kingdom. I'm in the kingdom, I'm now, I mean... Lord, I'm just dizzy doing that two times. I mean, I had no peace. I had no comfort in my heart. Now look, everybody in here that's saved will sin at one time or another in your life. When we, when we go to the book of John, we're going to spend some time looking at some things. But I didn't know what John had said in 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from how much sin? All sin. Y'all not going to shout, I am. I'm glad for that. Do you hear me? Now, that doesn't give me a liberty to sin. Everybody heard me say that, say amen. Being, being sure of your salvation, being in Christ, being sealed to the Spirit, having the earnest of the Spirit, having the witness of the Spirit, having the truths of the Word of God, does not give me a license to sin. It gives me assurance to serve. It gives me the liberty to serve, to serve in spite of the fact that I'll sin. Let me quote you what 1 John 2 and 1 says, and we'll come back to that. Man, you ought, you ought to put this in your memory as I have mine. John says, and he's starting a new chapter in verse 2 of his first epistle. 
After he tells us up above that if we sin, say that we sin not, you know, we lie and deceive ourselves. He goes on to say, little children, talking about God's children. The first letter that John wrote, um, inspired by God, was to the family of God. Not, not to lost. That's not what that epistle is about. It can affect the lost. It can bless the lost. It can even bring the lost to a point of knowing they need Christ. But that little letter is for God's children. The Barnes, B-A-I-R-N-S, I think the way it's spelled. His children, his little, these things I write unto you, the church, that ye sin not. Everybody heard me say that, say amen. But what word do you think verse 2 starts with in 1 John chapter 2? But the second word is if, which means since, or in light of the fact that you sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous who is the propitiation for my sins and your sins and the sins of all the world. Now he's there knowing that we'll sin, knowing that we need an advocate. Remember we talked about where's Jesus at right now? Anybody tell us, where's Jesus at right now? The right hand of the Father. He's there in the body that he had when he came through the womb of, of Mary and that he rose out from among the dead, although it's a glorified body. What's he doing there? He's what? For whom? All of us. That ought to make a Baptist shout, let, an RG, let alone an RGTite. Now look, the Word of God tells us something if we'll just let it speak to us. So even at that time, and i got to go back. I, I, see, I can't wait to get to John. We could spend, Lord, we could spend months in John. Back here, two loaves, Jew and Gentile. And he said, now when you, when you mix them up, when you're making that dough, you throw a little bit of leaven or yeast, we would say. You, you throw a little bit of that corruption in them. Isn't that amazing how wise God... See the picture he gives us? You say, preacher, what's that mean? Where, where do you put bread? In the oven. And you bake it. Does the fire have any effect on that leaven? Leaven? Ladies, tell us, or men, whoever, tell us what kind of effect it has on it. It what? It does, but what else? It kills it. It sure does. It sure does. See, I want to shout right now so bad I can't stand it. I mean, God has got this thing figured out all the way for me and you. We're saved by the grace of God. We're kept by the grace of God. We'll die in the grace of God. And in eternity, we'll bask in the grace of God. We don't get there by our good works. We get there by the work Christ did. And we get there because we put our trust in the work that Christ did. Now, that being said, I wish I could remember who the great man of God of the last century or the century prior to that made this statement. He said, look, we're saved by grace and grace alone, but grace that saves is not alone. Meaning that we work after we're saved. Not in order to be saved, 
not in order to say stay, but to prove that we are saved. If there is grace in you, sir, ma'am, something will come out of you. If you agree with that, say amen. I'm not real smart, but I've, I've got that figured out. But those two loaves of bread were an offering. We're an offering. Now, what's a wave offering? Anybody know? Some people don't. It took me years to know. A wave offering is simply this. Something that you pick up and you wave it before the Lord. Okay? You know, you just recognize Him. That's one of the reasons the first fruit, all right, they went out in the field, they cut down those barley barley stalks of, of grain and they got enough of them where they get a little bundle they tied them together with either a piece of string or a piece of leather and they did that on the sabbath so that they'd have it on the morning of the first day of the week on sunday so that the priest could come and stand outside of the tabernacle and lift it up and wave it can you see jesus coming out from among the dead out from you know the rest man this book is beautiful I don't know how the time goes quick from this side of the pulpit. I hope it does on your side too. But we're just, we're just looking in this. We'll start back in Acts chapter 2. But read that and read, read, make time sometime or another. Read Leviticus 23 and ask God to show you some things and ask Him to help you see. And if you want to get in a little more, uh, um, more in-depth study of it, try to come tomorrow night and Next Wednesday night, we'll, we'll look at a few things. We'll spend a night or two on it anyway as we consider some things. Questions, comments from tonight?